The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Sequel to the Targeted Therapy Era in CML, Guidance on Integrating Novel Options into Cohesive Sequential Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MZQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning to you all this morning. I have here on my left, Dr. Kendra Sweet, who is an associate member and clinical research director at Moffitt Cancer Center. And all the way at the end, I have Dr. Michael Morrow, who is the leader of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering and also a professor at Weill Cornell. All right, so CML is a clonal disorder that arises in a hematopoietic stem cell, and it's driven by the rearrangement of BCR and ABL1. And you can detect this by cytogenetics, fluorescence in C2 hybridization, and by RTQPCR. It was the first chromosomal abnormality detected, and it was one of the first cytogenetic rearrangements described. And in 2001, we had our first targeted therapy against BCR-ABL imatinib approved by the FDA. So before the era of TKIs, the natural history of CML was typically most patients would present in chronic phase. This was with cell differentiation intact. Then over time, we would have the emergence of accelerated phase with additional cytogenetic abnormalities and or increasing BLAS. This was followed inevitably by BLAS phase, which is an acute leukemia, and you would have a block in differentiation as well as additional cytogenetic abnormalities. Unfortunately, in the absence of hematopoietic cell transplant, life expectancy was only on the order of five to six years. Even in the era of TKIs for blast-phase CML, median survival is only about seven to 12 months. The IRIS study was the phase three randomized study of interferon and cytarabine versus imatinib, and this is our benchmark for improved overall survival and excellent overall survival for CML. As you can see here in orange at 10 years, overall survival is 83%. There have been a number of retrospective reviews that have shown us that patients with CML have life expectancy similar to age-matched peers, and I show you here data from the Swedish Cancer Registry. However, in order for patients to have normal life expectancy, we need to eliminate and reduce the risk of disease progression and CML-related death. We need to prevent and manage irreversible toxicities, and we need to manage and minimize side effects to promote adherence and to optimize quality of life. In 2022, we have a number of therapies for CPCML. We have our first-generation TKI imatinib, the second-generation TKIs dasatinib, nilotinib, and basutinib. We have the third-generation TKI panatinib, which is approved for T315I mutated CML and is generally used in the third line and beyond. Very recently approved at the end of last year in the U.S. is Asiminib, which is an able meristal pocket inhibitor. It's approved for T315I mutated CML and in the third line and beyond. In the U.S., we also have the protein synthesis inhibitor amacitaxane in the third line and beyond. So our clinical questions for 2022 are, what disease-specific and patient-specific risk factors in CPCML impact diagnosis outcomes, and how does this influence first-line TKI selection? Which patients are eligible for TKI discontinuation? Which strategies may promote treatment-free remission? And when should we stop therapy? Today, Dr. Kendra Sweet will address these two questions. The third, when do we change therapy and how do we optimize treatment selection in patients who are resistant to second-generation TKIs will be addressed by Dr. Michael Morrow. There are some features which can help us identify patients with high-risk CPCML at diagnosis. This includes clinical risk scores, such as the UTOS long-term survival score, as well as the older risk scores, the Euro and Sokol score. Additionally, we know that specific high-risk additional chromosomal abnormalities are associated with poor response to TKI, and we also have data that for some alternative transcripts, such as the P190, that there are poorer outcomes. Shown here are response milestones for CPCML. So at left, I show you the responses that are associated with progression-free survival and overall survival. And in particular, this is a BCR able of less than or equal to 1%, which is associated with a long-term survival benefit. At the right, I show you the responses that are required for treatment-free remission, and these are the deeper molecular responses, BCR able of less than or equal to 0.01% and BCR able 1 of less than or equal to 0.0032%. These responses don't bring a particular overall survival benefit, but they are needed for TKI discontinuation. 
Shown here are data from the IRIS study, which is based on the B-serial one transcript level at 12 months. And as you can see here in orange and blue, patients who had B-serial one transcripts of less than 1% and less than 0.1%, which is a major molecular response, had the best event-free survival. However, deeper responses are important for patients. They are needed for, in order to qualify for TKI discontinuation and for treatment-free remission. So the benefits for patients include resolution of TKI-related adverse events, mitigation of long-term iatrogenic risks, also a relief of out-of-pocket medical expenses. It also brings this feeling of being cured. For healthcare systems, it's a reduced financial burden of CML treatment. So at right here, I show you the long-term TFR rates at seven years for one of our oldest TKI discontinuation studies, STEM1, which discontinued imatinib in their first patient in 2004. And at seven years, the TFR rate was 45.6%. However, at the other end of the spectrum, we know that outcomes for patients on later lines of therapy are poor and that CML-related death increases which, with each subsequent line of therapy. And so I show here data from a retrospective analysis at MD Anderson of 582 patients who received at least one TKI. And as you can see here in the green and red curves for patients who received three or four or more TKIs, that overall survival and transformation-free survival was poor. So in 2022, it's really important for us to understand how to sequence therapeutics and to integrate new therapeutics. Today at this meeting, and also from Dr. Morrow, you're going to hear about a seminib possibly for an earlier role in earlier line therapy, as well as possible combination therapy for TKI. And additionally, at this ASH meeting, and at the end of today's talk, a presentation today, you will hear a little bit about emerging data for novel third-generation and fourth-generation TKIs. And so in 2022, we've got six effective therapies with common and unique toxicities. All are effective at decreasing blast phase transformation. Switching therapies can help ameliorate adverse events, and discontinuation in selected patients appears to be safe. The questions and unmet needs that still exist include what is the best frontline therapy for an individual patient? What determines poor response, and how do we sequence therapy? What determines rare disease progression and how do we treat it? And what determines who can and cannot discontinue therapy? And what are the best strategies to improve TFR? So today's agenda is we'll cover the shape of frontline TKI treatment and planning for lines of therapy, choosing personalized treatment for later line CPCML, and throughout we'll have a case-based discussion on current evidence to customize therapy. Good morning. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Okay, so over the last few years, CML has really become a pretty gratifying disease to treat, and this is in large part because of the fact that we have so many highly effective drugs that have been approved that all have shown to have very durable and lasting responses. But with so many options to choose from, then begs the question, how do we decide how to sequence these treatments? How do we know which drug is the best drug for each of our individual patients? So there are a number of factors that we need to take into account when making that decision. It's not really a one-size-fits-all for each of our patients. So one of the first factors we need to think about is our goal of achieving a deep and durable molecular response. Because as far as I'm concerned, if we really have to narrow down our goals in managing our chronic phase CML patients to really one primary goal, it's to prevent the progression to advanced phase CML. And the best way to do that, of course, is to achieve a deep molecular response that will be long-lasting. So that's, of course, one of our first main priorities is what drug is going to give us the highest likelihood of achieving a deep, durable response. In addition to that, we need to think about monitoring for progression and the risk for therapeutic resistance. And then tolerability, this is a huge issue. It's really important that we know the toxicity profile of all of these drugs, both early and late toxicities, and the patient's comorbidities and how these two things go hand in hand so that we can pick the best drug that's not likely to exacerbate the patient's already comorbid conditions. And then more recently, we've started thinking about TKI cessation and treatment-free remission as a long-term goal for therapy. This is something that a lot of us now, I think, talk about with patients even right up front at the time that they're diagnosed, that, you know, there is a subset of patients who, over time, with a good enough response, and we'll touch on this in a few slides from now, are able to potentially come off treatment. So we need to keep that in mind when there's a patient that we think may be a good person for that down the line. 
So there are a number of risk scores that have been developed over the years, as Dr. Oller mentioned. The ELTS, or the UTOS Long-Term Survival Score, is one of the newer ones. And this model was developed in order to predict the likelihood of dying from CML, or the leukemia-related death. So the factors that are included in this calculation, they're all baseline factors at the time of diagnosis. The patient's age, spleen size, peripheral blast percentage, and platelet count at the time of diagnosis. And really what differentiates the ELTS from the SOCOL score which is another one that we commonly use, is the emphasis on age, or the, it really de-emphasizes the negative prognostic value of age, which seems less important in the TKI era than it did back when we were treating these patients with conventional chemotherapy. So this table at the bottom here, you can see patients who were rated as intermediate or high risk by SOCOL score, have, uh, many of them have been downgraded to low risk by ELTS. But then when you look at how that impacts, or look at the, the 10-year overall survival, and more importantly, the leukemia related deaths, the ELTS seems to better predict the high-risk patients by more accurately picking out those patients who are likely to die from leukemia. But the ELN panel now does recommend using the ELTS over other risk scores at the time of diagnosis. So I'm not going to harp on this too much because I think most people here are probably pretty familiar with the data from these trials. But we now in the United States have four TKIs that are approved for frontline therapy, imatinib, dasatinib, nilotinib, basutinib. And those regulatory approvals are based on results from very large randomized phase three trials. So really the point to make from this slide is just that the overall survival of these patients is fantastic. If you look at the column all the way to the far right, you can see, as Dr. Oller mentioned, the IRIS trial, the imatinib-treated patients after nearly 11 years of follow-up, 83.3% survival. And in the second-generation trials, decision and SND and before, the survival at five years is all in the 90% range. None of these were statistically significant, the difference in overall survival. So that is something that comes up a lot, is there's no statistically significant difference in overall survival between patients treated with dasatinib versus imatinib, or nilatinib or basutinib versus imatinib. When they look at the subset of patients who are categorized as intermediate or high risk, and in those patients, there is a survival benefit that's seen with the second-generation TKIs. So that data has been taken into account when the NCCN has put together their guidelines as far as choosing upfront therapy for our newly diagnosed chronic phase patients. So you can see, of course, recommendations include considering factors like we just talked about, comorbidities, toxicity profile, possible drug interactions, and of course, patient preference. But then you want to stratify your patient by risk score because you can see the low-risk patients, one of the preferred regimens is imatinib. Of course, the second-generation TKI is, is a reasonable option depending on on those long-term goals, but imatinib does not have any, there's no difference in overall survival in that setting. However, in the patients who are intermediate or high risk in that setting, preferred regimens would be a second-generation TKI. There's not one over the other. That, again, is based on the patient, but imatinib is a little lower on the list of priorities because of the survival benefit that we see. So Dr. Euler touched on this a bit. There are various milestones, response milestones, that we look for in our patients at different time points during their course of treatment. So once we start a patient on treatment, we're following them for response. And the first response that we look for is a complete hematologic response. And this is defined as a complete normalization of the peripheral blood counts and resolution of any palpable splenomegaly. But we expect to see this within about the first four weeks after starting treatment. And once, we, once someone has achieved this response, Strictly monitoring the CBC tells us very little about how well we're really controlling their CML. So then we look for a deeper level of response, which is a cytogenetic response, and a complete cytogenetic response, which is equivalent to a molecular response of 1% on the international scale. Um, A complete cytogenetic response is defined as no Philadelphia chromosome-positive metaphases on standard karyotyping in the bone marrow. So we ideally will see a complete cytogenetic response by 12 months on treatment. There are lesser cytogenetic responses that I'm not going to delve into right now. So both the ELN and the NCCN have recommendations for these desired outcomes at various time points, and then we'll categorize patients based on their response. So the ELN will classify someone as having an optimal response, warning, or failure, and the NCCN classifies people as being either TKI-sensitive or TKI-resistant. And although these look different, the NCCN's at the bottom, the ELN's at the top, and they do look different, at the end of the day, they're more or less saying the same thing, which is what I just said for the most part, which is we want an early molecular response at three months, ideally, but definitely by six months. We want a complete cytogenetic response for sure by 12 months, but preferably a major molecular response because that certainly has correlation with event-free survival.
So there are multiple ways that we can monitor for response and monitor the status of someone's disease when we're treating someone for CML. As I mentioned, bone marrow biopsies are not commonly done, although there are certainly times when it is appropriate. Diagnosis is 100% necessary to be doing bone marrow biopsies still. This is because it's the only way to know for sure if a patient's in chronic phase, accelerated phase, or blast phase. And we also need to be getting that baseline karyotype, and that is from the bone marrow. But also, if someone is failing to reach response milestones, any signs of loss of response that we just talked about, a bone marrow biopsy would be appropriate at that point as well. PCR, again, is more commonly used, and the, the guidelines recommend checking PCR on the peripheral blood at diagnosis and then every three months after initiating treatment. Once someone has achieved a BCRA bone transcript level of 1% or less, then the recommendation is PCR every three months for the next two years, and then every three to six months thereafter. If someone has a one-log increase in BCRA bone transcript levels with a loss of major molecular response, we want to repeat BCRA bone levels more frequently, so maybe in one to three months. And then in someone who's not responding the way we would hope, either they have failed to reach these milestones or they met the milestones and then are losing their response, Oftentimes, that's because of a mutation in ABLE. So we want to look for those mutations specifically using a, an ABLE kinase domain mutation analysis. So the times to be doing that would be in someone who has failed to reach their response milestones, if they have achieved them and then lost them, so loss of hematologic response, loss of complete cytogenetic response, or of course, at the time of progression to accelerated or blast phase CML. And this is crucial because the data that we get from those mutation analyses is going to guide our second line and later therapy. Okay. So the Simplicity study, this is an observational study that was done in the United States and in Europe. It looked at chronic phase CML patients who were treated with frontline imatinib, dasatinib, or nilotinib. So initially, the data that came from the study showed us that patients who were able to remain on their first-line TKI were significantly more likely to achieve a clinical response compared to those patients who were switched to a second-line TKI, just highlighting the importance of trying to maintain patients on their first-line drug whenever possible. So more recently, Recently, this year, and I don't want to steal Dr. Morrow's thunder, so I'll just briefly touch on this, because Dr. Morrow's presenting this in poster format on Monday if you want to see more details, but there's an update on this study looking at the 426 U.S.-treated patients who did not switch from first-line therapy within those first five years and looked at the overall survival rates dependent on TKI. And you can see this survival curve shown here on the right. The five-year-old survival was excellent regardless, 91% or higher regardless of TKI. The curves do look like maybe they're separating a little bit farther out, but I think we need to keep in mind there was some baseline, there are some differences in baseline characteristics in the imatinib cohort that potentially could account for that, but I will defer to Dr. Morrow more on that one. But again, just highlighting the fact that these are all excellent drugs that all have a place and we need to be selecting the best drug up front because patients do better if we can keep them on it. All right, so moving on to treatment-free remission, I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. The ELN and the NCCN have guidelines in place for who would be eligible for an attempt at TKI cessation. So per the ELN, patients need to be in chronic phase only. This is not something we do for advanced phase CML. They need to be motivated. They need to be reliable patients. There needs to be access to high-quality PCR that can be reported on the international scale with rapid turnaround. And they need to be willing to be coming in for more frequent monitoring than what they were doing while on treatment. Because the recommendations are to check monthly for the first six months and then every two months between months six and 12 and then every three months thereafter. So the minimal recommendations for someone to be eligible to discontinue would be someone on first or second line therapy, but if second line, the reason for switching should be intolerance and not resistance. They need to have typical BCRA-able transcripts so that we can monitor them and get reports using the international scale. Ideally, a minimum of five years on a TKI, but four years is acceptable if they're on a second generation drug, with at least two years of deep molecular response, meaning MR4 or better, with no history of treatment failure. Ideally, patients should be on treatment for at least five years with at least three years of MR4 and two years of, I should say, MR4.5. That would be the ideal outcome. And this is a little more stringent than the NCCN. The NCCN says a minimum of three years on a TKI with at least two years of MR4.0. So the ELN definitely has some stricter guidance here. 
This looks at the vast number of TKI discontinuation trials that have been done. And really just the point here is that the treatment-free remission rates or the TFR rates are all strikingly similar across the board, regardless of some minor differences in baseline treatment or eligibility criteria or potentially the definition of molecular recurrence. At the end of the day, it's approximately 50% of patients who are able to remain off treatment long term. So this comes from the Australian CML8 twister trial, where they discontinued imatinib. Some of the patients had previously been treated with interferon, but at eight years, the molecular recurrence-free survival in this study was 45%. And some of those patients who did have a relapse did make a second attempt at discontinuation. Some of them were actually successful with this. But one of the interesting things that they found on this trial is that in all of the patients who remained in TFR, all of them at one time or another had detectable BCRA-able DNA. So again, we're not technically curing these patients. There's still disease present that we're able to pick up, but functionally, you can see this curve levels off. Functionally, these patients have been cured, I think is a fair statement, although others may disagree. We'll touch on that. The STOP2G TKI trial looked at discontinuation of nilotinib or dasatinib. It could have been frontline or second line, and some of these patients were resistant to imatinib, although most of them were intolerant if they were on second line therapy. And again, looking, the primary endpoint of this study was the TFR rate at 12 months, which was 63.3% in the entire cohort. What was interesting here is they actually did a landmark analysis at three months, looking at the predictive ability of the response at three months after stopping treatment. And what they found was that patients who had detectable BCR able above 0.0032 but still had MMR had a, higher, a significantly higher rate of relapse than those patients who had undetectable BCR able at three months. So you can see those curves are really separated based on that response at three months, which I think is kind of interesting to look at. So moving on to safety considerations, and then we're going to get into some cases. I think everybody knows that the TKIs, all of these TKIs have some class effects, right? There's myelosuppression, there's transaminitis, there's electrolyte changes that we see across the board. But each of these drugs have their own individual toxicity profile that we need to become familiar with. So imatinib, for example, can cause edema, fluid retention, GI side effects. Basutinib is pretty well known for diarrhea, nausea. Dasatinib causes pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, bleeding, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Nilotinib can increase pancreatic enzymes increase silirubin, hyperglycemia, QT prolongation, and cardiovascular events. And then panatinib can also increase pancreatic enzymes, can cause hypertension, skin toxicity, and thrombotic events. So just getting familiar with these adverse events is important. Dr. Oler has previously presented this nice algorithm of kind of how to select frontline treatment based on a patient's age and comorbidities. So I'm not going to go through each individual thing because you guys can see this, but basically this is for patients without any significant comorbidities or medical history. In a younger patient, starting with a second generation TKI, regardless of risk, makes sense because we're probably wanting to consider treatment-free remission at some point in that patient. In the kind of the middle age range, 41 to 65, we'd want to stratify based on their risk. So the intermediate and high-risk patients, we'd favor a second-generation TKI. The lower-risk patients, we'd favor imatinib. In our older patients, then we start to potentially move towards imatinib a little bit more. And definitely in our patients 80 and above, imatinib would be a, probably a safer choice. In our patients with baseline cardiovascular disease, diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, we kind of get rid of that 40 and below category, and then are, we're really stratifying based on risk. And in these patients, the intermediate and high risk, we still want to use a second-generation TKI because of that survival benefit, but in this case, avoiding drugs like nilotinib or probably dasatinib because of potential cardiovascular issues. But basutinib would be a reasonable option there, and then, of course, if not, we can then use imatinib. But in the low-risk patients, imatinib is a reasonable choice. In our older patients, we move those intermediate risk to the imatinib-only category, and the high-risk patients, we'd still start on a second-generation drug, avoiding nilotinib and dasatinib. And then finally, our patients with pulmonary disease or pulmonary arterial hypertension, the ones under 65, we, again, a second-generation drug that are high-risk but avoiding dasatinib, the low-risk imatinib, 66 to 80, second-generation drugs for the high-risk only but avoiding dasatinib. And then for low-intermediate or patients over 80, we want to go with imatinib. So as far as sequencing these drugs, we do have data that tells us about efficacy and tolerance in the second line and later settings, but really that's only in patients who have switched because of true resistance or true intolerance. We don't have excellent data telling us about efficacy when our goals in switching are for reasons such as 
trying to improve long-term survival because someone has just a suboptimal response or a warning response, if they just have low-grade adverse events, or if we're just trying to improve their molecular response or pursue undetectable BCR-ABLE. That's where the data is a little bit lacking. We've touched on this already, so I'm not going to delve into this, but I will highlight that assimilative is now added to this adverse event slide, which I haven't talked about yet, and Dr. Morrow is going to delve into this a lot, and I want to leave time for the cases. But just pointing out, again, that each drug has their own individual toxicities that we really need to become familiar with. So when it comes time to make a recommendation for second-line and later therapy, probably the most important factor is waiting for the results for that mutation analysis because that is absolutely going to guide our next-line treatment. If it's negative, that's one thing, but if we find a mutation, that's absolutely necessary to help guide our treatment. So this table comes from the NCCN where you can see the various drugs and the mutations that are contraindicated. I think everyone is familiar with T315i. So we all know that T315i confers resistance to all first and second generation TKIs. But we can use asiminib and we can use panatinib or amacitaxine. So you certainly don't need to memorize this. It's in the NCCN guidelines. But this is really important to reference once we get results back from those mutation analyses. All right, so now we're going to move on to cases. Okay, so the first case is Mr. M. He's a 71-year-old man with newly diagnosed chronic face CML and a high-risk ELTS. He presented initially with a high white count, 357,000, left-shifted diff, elevated platelets. His spleen was palpated 6 centimeters below the left tofsal margin. 20 out of 20 pH positive metaphases. His B-seriable transcripts were 77%. His past medical history is hypertension, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease with two stents, and MI and gout. So what would you choose? What do you think you would choose for first-line treatment for Mr. M. I want to hear this. one of you guys. Good morning. Yeah. So 71 with high, higher risk disease, but comorbidities. This is a difficult situation. I mean, I think we're, um, we're tempted to use a second-generation inhibitor here because of the high risk. I would favor using a second-generation inhibitor and try to pick something which has the highest yield, lowest risk. I might choose to sandnib in a patient like this because I'm looking for a response, and hopefully side effects can be mitigated and, and monitored for. Okay. Yeah. So I agree with Mike. We have type 2 diabetes and coronary artery disease, so I'd probably avoid nilotinib. Mm -hmm. I might favor basutinib, provided this patient doesn't have any GI side effects. All right. Cool. He started on basutinib. Either of those would be reasonable options. Mr. M started on basutinib, 400 milligrams daily. He achieved a complete hematologic response. He achieved an early molecular response at three months. He did not achieve major molecular response by a year, but he did achieve a complete cytogenetic response. However, started losing that by 15 months. So at 16 months, his PCR was 13.1%. So a kinase domain mutation analysis was sent, and he was found to have a V299L mutation. And the V299L confers resistance to both basutinib and dasatinib. So now what would your next choice be? Yeah, so our choice here, uh, you know, think of nilotinib, obviously. So my worry here, of course, would be the coronary artery disease. So I might uh, then think about asiminib, and we're going to hear a little bit more about this later in the talk today, as a possibility. So, of course, we know that asiminib is approved in the third line and beyond, but that doesn't mean that we can't necessarily make a case for that. And I think it's the coronary artery disease that's driving that for me. Dr. Morrow? I would probably have to nudge him off to the cardiologist and, and, and see how grave the coronary disease is. Yeah. And I might consider a trial of Pananib because he has high-risk disease. He has a fairly flagrant relapse with transcripts rising, mutations which may beget other mutations, and we don't have access to Zimitib at this moment. But I certainly support the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. So really the options for this person based on the disease would be nilotinib, panatinib, or asiminib. But, as has been mentioned, nilotinib has the risk for peripheral arterial occlusive disease, hyperglycemia in a diabetic patient, and long-term cardiovascular complications, panatinib, hypertension, and arterial occlusive events. And asiminib can cause hypertension, but as it stands now, we're not as concerned with cardiovascular events long-term. But it is not approved in the third line, or I'm sorry, the second line setting. So this is a challenging one. Okay, we're going to move on to the second case. This is Ms. C, a 33-year-old woman with newly diagnosed chronic face CML with a low-risk ELTS. She initially presented with a white count of 43,000, no peripheral blasts or increased basophils, normal platelets, no splenomegaly. Cytogenetics were what we would expect. B-seriable transcripts, 31.3%. Only past medical history is one healthy pregnancy three years ago. So at diagnosis, she clearly states that her goal is to discontinue treatment as soon as possible. So what would the most appropriate frontline treatment be for Ms. C? Yeah. So, Dr. Morrow? 
Oh, well, so we, I think you did a beautiful job of, of highlighting, you know, yeah. looking at the disease, looking at the patient, looking at their comorbidities, looking at their goals. So I think in a younger patient without comorbidities whose goal is treatment free remission, a second generation inhibitor, I'm going to withhold on which one to choose because I yeah. think uh, literally any of them would be suitable. Yeah. So I'm going to agree with Dr. Morrow. I, I'd choose the second generation TK. I'm not really sure if she's finished with family planning, you know, and so I would definitely, and which one to choose, I think anyone would be appropriate in this case. So, yeah. yeah. Any of them would be appropriate, yep. exactly. In her case, she started on desatinib 100 milligrams daily. So she achieved early molecular response. She achieved MMR by a year. By two years, she achieved undetectable BCR able and maintained that response until four years. So she met the ELN criteria for an attempt at TKI cessation. So she stopped treatment and maintained or remained in TFR long term. And just again to highlight that the NCCN has slightly less stringent criteria. So she could have potentially stopped earlier based on that. But in this case, she did not. All right, so just to sum it up, and then we'll move on to Dr. Morrow. There are numerous, numerous excellent options for treating our frontline chronic phase patients. Factors that we need to take into account include ELTS or SOCOL risk score, patient age, comorbidities and toxicity profile of each drug, and the long-term treatment goals. Second-line treatment in the setting of resistance requires the results of the kinase domain mutation analysis prior to making a change. And good supportive care is imperative to managing TKI toxicity and minimizing the need to change because of low-grade adverse events. So on that note, I'm going to move on, or we will move on. All right. So thank you, Dr. Sweet, Dr. Morrow. <laughs> so. Wow. That's a, a tough act to follow. So the third part is going to be decision-making with targeted therapy and later lines of care. So here you're building your house and everything looked great, but the contractor tells you that the foundation's cracked and there's termites and the, the roof needs to change. You need to do something different. So we just heard some wonderful presentations about, you know, how the, the landscape looks and really how to, you know, how to build a house properly in, in, in the beginning. But how can therapy fail a patient? I was actually reminded by a patient to phrase it that way, not that the patient fails therapy. First, primary hematologic resistance is exceedingly rare. You know, we're able to get blood counts control most of the time. We talked a fair bit about milestones, but, you know, some patients don't get an early molecular remission. They may have persistence of transcripts. This may be fairly ominous. These patients may not respond very well to salvage and may be in trouble. Many patients can achieve a cytogenetic remission, but don't achieve an MMR. I sometimes call them a kinetic failure. They may have transcripts that are slow moving. They may not get there perhaps by two years when we might think that's sort of the drop date. And these patients are protected. They have a significant improvement in their outcome, but their event-free survival may be lower. So we may want to think about optimizing them. Many of us have patients who are on MMR but remain above the threshold for which treatment cessation can be considered. They're still in what we call a safe harbor, but it's sort of an imperfect remission because of the failure to achieve TFR criteria. I'm not sure how we view that. That may not be a deal breaker in many patients. And then, of course, the last comment I just want to make is that deep molecular remission, but PCR positive is not failure. I got Dr. Sweet alluded to, you know, PCR positivity, and I will show you something about that in a moment. And we obviously have a nice traffic light scenario, but you notice that it really just focuses on major molecular remission and early milestones. So those are sort of key areas that can trip us up. A word on this persistence of PCR positivity. This is the data that Dr. Sweet alluded to on the left from the original trials where patients who were in deep remission, PCR undetectable by standard technology. If you look by DNA-specific PCR, PCR able could be detectable, even in patients in successful TFR 5, 7, 10 years on. And on the right is a newer analysis, which I think is very intriguing, and it did a very detailed analysis of where is the PCR coming from in patients who are either very low or even undetectable and who want a sensitive assay, you can then flow sort cells and then ascertain that they may be actually coming from B or T cells not the myeloid compartment in some patients. And if that probably makes sense. If the PCR is coming from the myeloid compartment, relapse may be more likely. Or if it's coming from a non-proliferating compartment that may have been part of the original disease, genesis, it may not relapse. So this might explain why we have functional cure and PCR positivity, even in patients who um, are off therapy. I alluded to some of these predictive tools. So on the upper left is data presented a few years back now looking at the impact of early molecular emission on overall survival, progression-free survival, failure-free survival, MMR, and CMR. Those are all the differences between patients who do or don't get a 10% transcript level or lower early on. On the right is the impact of achieving an MMR, which comes from the IRIS trial, which is fairly clear. And on the lower part of the slide, we have some of the negative elements. So mutation status, it obviously matters, is a different profile in blast phase disease than there is in chronic phase, much or T315I, at least historically, in lymphoid and, and myeloid blast crisis. So the mutations are important. They're not as frequent as we, we might expect in chronic phase disease. But then on the right, you know, if you do have a mutation and you can ascertain the IC50 against TKI you're choosing, it will definitely predict your response. So all the guidance about looking for mutations and picking based on the predicted sensitivity are obviously true. 
But, you know, we also heard the point that, you know, many patients change therapy. We really can't fear that change. This is also data from the Simplicity Study, which was an earlier look, and it basically shared with us that about a quarter of patients change their first-line TKI. It just happens. It's often intolerance. In fact, that was the most common reason for discontinuation, and the reasons in the Simplicity data are listed. But, you know, we need to be nimble because we have a very large population of chronic facema patients living with disease on the upper right as estimates in the U.S. that will have, you know, upwards of 200 to 250,000 patients living with CML in the next few decades. And patients really are keen to think about treatment free remission. They'd like to be free of their TKI. So we have to be sensitive to these different elements. We have a lot of tools. There are actually nine approved TKIs globally, six in the United States. We covered the U.S. list, at least in the first and second line, but there's a compound that was produced and developed in South Korea called rodontinib, which is quite effective. There's an agent developed in China called flumantinib, also approved earlier lines of therapy. And also in China, olbarambanib has been licensed for patients with a TT15I mutation and resistant disease. So, And of course, isiminib was now, it's now globally available, both in the EU and the U.S., approved for, for patients with two TKI failure or TT15I mutation. So we have a lot of good tools, but we have to, again, think of our patients and figure out how to sort this out. So, you know, first, we have to think about the disease state, which I think we've covered, that T315I may be quite unique. The mutations may drive another TKI choice, uh, may be selected by the table it was alluded to. The predictive potential is a bit imprecise, though. You know, that single mutation you may see today may not be the only mutation the patient may have or have had. There's a bit of an iceberg phenomenon, and the complex clonal hierarchy of CML is just that. There's also the potential of the role for next-generation sequencing. In the NCCN guidelines in resistant patients, there is a comment to think about looking for other myeloid mutations, but what to do about them is really what we're missing. We don't understand necessarily how to overcome that. So that's work to do. You know, but then we have to balance with the patient. And I think this kind of probably sums up how things look in the clinic. We're talking about all the things we like to do in the patient saying, I can't stand these pills and uh, this sounds bad. I'm not responding. What's, what's wrong? Are there really contraindications to certain TKIs? I'm not sure they're that a reality. I think many people can still have access to most therapies, even with comorbidities and even with some of the adverse events. For the patient, we have to look at risk-benefit ratios and try to mitigate risk. I mentioned, you know, a, a patient who maybe need panantinib, let's get them to cardiovascular medicine for proper assessment and management of cardiovascular disease to minimize poor outcomes. And we obviously need to enlist our patients in the decision-making. We talked about mutations, and this just kind of summarizes the fact that there are a host of different mutations in the different regions of the uh, BCR-ABL kinase, in the ATP binding pocket where T15I lies, in the A loop, and the P loop, the activation and phosphorylation loop. There's a short list of mutations that are very common, and we see that it really affects drug binding. And then, of course, we sometimes see them as a result of genetic instability. We rarely see them at diagnosis or in untreated patients. We may see drug selection. I think that's fairly clear. And on the lower left is what I alluded to. This is a nice publication by Sue Branford highlighting what kind of other mutations we see. Perhaps not surprising, things like ASXL1, zinc finger mutations, RUNX1, and SETDB1 are some of the things that are shown in patients with chronic face female with poor risk, higher risk disease, and poor clinical outcomes. So again, we need to know how to manage these. We do have data telling us how to manage, you know, based on preclinical data, how the different mutations will behave under certain drug conditions, these so-called heat map figures. This one on the left is probably familiar if you're in this field, showing sensitivity and resistance to, this, to certain TKIs based on the mutation, the region, etc. On the right is some newer work where we're now included Asiminib, and we see there may be some differences there as well, and then some very important work looking at the potential ability to target compound mutations, i.e. which TKI or what combination of TKI could potentially subvert a clone that's got more more than one mutation in the kinase at the same time. If a kinase you know, mutates more than beyond its capability to retain its normal function and structure, that's not going to be viable. But compound mutations do exist. So I think these are important data coming and maybe some more work on combinations. I'm not going to dwell on this either because I think Dr. Sweet covered it quite nicely. I think I'll just highlight on the bottom, you know, most of our concern when we look at later lines of therapy is we may have to make a treatment choice where there are risks, and we're particularly concerned about the more morbid risks in the cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary space, which are evident with most TKIs, I would say. Perhaps amantinib has the least, or pasutinib fairly closely, the blandest of profiles. And I don't cover the data, but, you know, we know that panantinib, unfortunately, was actually subject to a prescribing hold and careful scrutiny and adjudication of adverse events has occurred. And I think we've learned how to work around them, but we have to be able to balance the benefits of some of these agents with some of their risks.
you know, there, it's not in a vacuum. I think, again, a, a good internist, cardiovascular specialist, or cardio-oncology as a specialty, which has really evolved, can help us manage and monitor patients. These are some of the most frequent adverse events and their association with different TKIs. We know that pleural effusion is the most common with desantinib, but arterial occlusive and worsening of glycemic control seen with nilotinib and pananib, of course, also has arterial occlusive events and, and hypertension given its activity against VEGF receptor. So we need to keep our eye on all these. We need to work in conjunction with our primary medicine and cardiovascular specialists, and there is guidance on how to, to uh, monitor. I'll share that with you in a, in a bit. So if we're beyond the point of a and we're thinking about choosing salvage, the table on the top looks at some of the older data comparing the second-generation TKIs after Amandib. And point one would be that they're pretty similar. Now, we can tailor decision-making based on mutations. We can obviously look at comorbidities and choose the right drug for the right patient, but expectations are similar. On the bottom is, I think, a nice analysis of not a study, but a collection of the likelihood of a cytogenetic remission. If you've been on a second-generation TKI, if you choose a different second-generation TKI, the colored bars, or if you switch to Pananib. I think that Pananib and its merits after a second-generation TKI were highlighted in this study. So back to the cardiovascular management, I think, again, all the drugs warrant some monitoring, some more than others. Drugs with higher cardiovascular risk, as was just mentioned, such as nilonib and pananib, you know, they're distinct, but they actually might suggest similar monitoring schemas at baseline and, and over follow-up. I've added Asimina provisionally because it's new enough where we might want to be, again, doing basic monitoring and be thoughtful to make sure we understand any adverse events which may emerge, which fortunately have been small. You know, it's not that complicated. On the right is a very nice table by one of my cardiology colleagues, Javid Mosley. He had, you know, A, B, C, D, E. We really just have to think about the patients. And again, not in a vacuum, not that we do, but it's very important to balance the risks and benefits. So what evidence do we have that supports these later lines of therapy? This is a busy slide, but I just wanted to summarize where we were at with Panandib. So on the upper right is a nice summary of optic and pace, looking at the likelihood of a cytogenetic complete remission at 12, 24, and 60 months. And we don't have the longer data for the optic trial yet, but you can see it's quite encouraging. And then on the lower left is the response by mutation. And what we learned in this optimization study was that 45 milligrams was still the appropriate starting dose, particularly for the T315I patients. Some might argue it might not be the same for other cases, but I think the benefits in the left corner there are pretty noticeable. In the lower right is a, sorry, it's a smaller figure, but it shows the mitigation of toxicity by lowering the dose. So we were able to preserve response, but minimize adverse events, particularly cardiovascular adverse events, by optimizing the penanib dose. On the upper left would be the major molecular emission rates, which I think are very encouraging as well. And these are some of the data we want to use perhaps as a comparison to our newer drugs like Asiminib and even XUS or other drugs active in this space. So let me talk to you about Asimineb. I think it's been alluded to. This is the first STAMP inhibitor. So STAMP is an acronym for specifically targeting the able Meristool pocket, which is distinct from the ATP binding pocket where all the other drugs bind. Again, we went through the approval. It's in the guidelines. It's in the EU uh, recommendations. So the ASSEMBLE study, which we'll get to in a little bit, was the primary analysis. And at the time, Basutinib was a comparator because there was a third-line experience, and it clearly demonstrated efficacy over Basutinib. Basutinib's toxicity profile was a challenge, as we knew, but with longer follow-up, the primary endpoint major molecular emission and cytogenetic emission rates were higher, and the safety profile looks favorable as well. So we'll get to that in a moment. Turning back to hands of time, Seminib has been long in development in phase one. It was actually listed in 2014 when the trials first started, and we worked hard at it for a number of years, and it was approved in 2021. The phase one study was one of the largest I've ever been associated with, and encompassed multiple dosing schemas, patient types, combination therapy with other TKIs, and advanced phase disease. So we've studied chronic phase CML and the T315I population. We've studied it versus basutinib, and we do have some data on combinations, which I'll share with you. On the way, many of you may be aware that there are trials for Seminib in the front line, and the second line, optimization, or as an add-on approach, as a way to improve treatment-free remission, both in the second attempt and also first attempt, and also in, nice to hear in pediatrics. In phase one, the early publications showed that, again, tolerability was the main goal here, but we were able to see that responses were quite encouraging as well, with hematologic and cytogenetic remissions in a very good fraction of patients, as well as emerging molecular responses. Perhaps a better way to look at it when you have a heterogeneous population was what's called a categorical shift. If you take patients, for example, who start in a cytogenetic remission, they were able to go on to gain MMR or deeper MR. If you look at a patient population who had higher transcript levels, many of them were able to get into these deeper milestones over time as we continue to study their response as well as their safety in the study. 
So the assemble study, again, the key study was a randomized trial for, of asimunib versus pasutinib for patients with chronic face female who have had two TKIs. Now they could not have had a T15I or a 299 mutation because it would have precluded their ability to be randomized in the trial. The doses were listed 40 twice daily for asimunib and 500 daily for pasutinib. These are the labeled doses for the disease status. And there was an allowance for patients to move to asimunib from the pasutinib arm. And we now have a 96-week follow-up. So the proportion of patients able to remain on Asimunib is higher. There was a breakdown for the reasons for discontinuation. There were slightly higher rates of patients moving off of Pasunib for lack of efficacy, but a noticeably higher fraction of patients for adverse events leading to the disposition in this trial. So the exposure was much less for Pasunib. The rates of discontinuation for Asimunib due to AEs is quite low and, and hasn't increased over time, which is nice to see. So the primary endpoint was major molecular emission at 24 weeks, which is on the left, and there was a clear difference. And on the right is a 96-week follow-up where it continues to be a statistical difference and has widened a bit. If we looked at different patient types, what might be the nuance? Is it different in patients with different degrees of response or lines of therapy? And in this analysis, it showed that irrespective of the demographic or prognostic subgroup, Asimunib was favored. Some of the things were a bit interesting, male versus female, and later lines of therapy. And we really you know, could see the difference between third, fourth, and fifth line therapy and transcript levels as well. So more data analysis would be helpful, but this was quite telling. With regards to cumulative achievement of MMR, we can see that at the early time point of 24 weeks, it was occurring and was different. You know, you'll, you're following these curves. They never get, they never diminish, but you want to know if they catch up. And I think we're seeing that Asimunib remains better over time versus Pasutinib. Looking at a slightly lesser end, but important endpoint of transcripts less than 1%, the equivalent of cytogenetic complete remission, I can, we can see the differences here. Now, because most patients have achieved this response with later follow-up, we're not seeing a greater increment at 96 weeks, but it's holding as it did in the earlier analysis. You know, we, we obviously focus on overall and event-free survival. So for event-free survival here, for basutinib, the EFS, the 50% level was reached. The median time was approximately five to six months. So deeper molecular emissions are shown here. So this is, again, maybe our ultimate goal still in a resistant patient. Can we get them to an MR4 or MR4.5? And you can see that, you know, basutinib patients are responding, particularly those that are able to stay on and who got early response. But Asimunib continues to show an advantage. Many of us have wondered what might we see after such a treatment with regards to mutations. So roughly half the patients had no mutations at the end of treatment for those that exited for lack of efficacy or disease progression. There were slightly higher, or there were higher fractions of new mutations after Asimunib, and they do span across the A-loop and P-loop and T215I, as well as the mirastoil pocket. I think the numbers are quite small, which is encouraging. Someone might have wondered, well, you're probably going to see resistance that's focused on this drug and where it's binding. For basutinib, we saw what we might expect of those mutations we see. They're the ones that are quite resistant, T215I and 299, and we didn't see mirastol pocket mutations there. So adverse events, very important to look at, especially with longer follow-up. Now, remember that the exposure was less, which actually would you know, make it more likely you'd see more with Asimunib, but Asimunib and basutinib both had adverse events, and we can see the overall in the grade 3, 4 in the far left. Leading to discontinuation was higher with pasutinib and also leading to dose interruption or reduction. So the most common leading to that, as you can see in the table, were myelosuppression for asimunib and some myelosuppression as well as liver enzyme elevations for pasutinib. The most frequent adverse events, and this has been presented in an earlier data set, the earlier look, were myelosuppression for asimunib and gastrointestinal side effects for pasutinib. And you can see the frequency of GI toxicity with pasutinib is similar to what we saw in some of our earlier studies and needs to be actively managed. We all have focused on arterial occlusive events, and I think this requires longer follow-up. We do see small differences. I think it's important to note that sometimes it's hard to understand where this is coming from because of the prior exposure, but we can't dismiss it based on that. We also are much more keen to discovery, and some of these adverse events, for example, were seen on routine monitoring. For example, a patient has coronary studies such as a stress test and is then diagnosed with coronary disease rather than a symptomatic or a morbid event. But indeed, the rates are somewhat higher and require some follow-up. With regards to the hematologic adverse events and that kinetics, they were more frequent with Asimunib, but you can see that they are generally occurring in the first few months, which is often a sort of a good problem. It's sort of response and myelosuppression when you're reducing the leukemia clone. And then as you look on the right, you can see that the, if you look at cumulative and, and recurring events, it, it falls over the years of treatment, over the first year and a half to two years of treatment. So fortunately, although it's more frequent, it's quite manageable and, and in fact may be related to disease response.
Similarly, for other adverse events, many of them are frequent, although some do trail out, such as fatigue, headache. Some things do occur you know, with later years of treatment and in the second year, but the other non-hematologic adverse events generally present in the first six months. They really persisted. So it seems quite tolerable. I think we covered the main endpoints here, that the MMR rate was nearly double and continued to improve, and that the median time to events was not reached with the Seminib. Both MMR and CCYR were improved with the Seminib, and I think the safety profile looks very encouraging. And of course, this is what led to approval, and now we have this at our disposal. So I think hopefully this data will become increasingly familiar and you'll have opportunity. Small detail, or very important detail, is that assessment was also approved for the T315I patients. So that, this data was coming from the phase one trial. And I think this is just a quick summary of that that we can see across patients who may have had or have not had panandib, we see activity with assessment, perhaps higher with panandib naive patients versus pretreated. We saw a tolerability that was similar, even though now the dose that's required is higher. It's five times the standard dose, 200 milligrams twice a day. And mutations acquired during study were rare, although there were some seen, just a handful. So I think the T25I experience was compelling enough to allow for approval here. Many of us are, you know, have questions about positioning compared to panandib, and I, I think that's a great question. Again, just a quick look at the combination data. So in the phase one trial, there were combination cohorts of imantinib, nilantinib, and desantinib with aseminib at various doses. What we learned was that for the combinations of aseminib with imantinib and nilantinib, that we do have an impact on the aseminib exposure. So we have to think about the dose of the other TKI. I'm sorry, the dose of aseminib. For desantinib, there was not a strong dose interaction, so a drug-drug interaction, so it gives us more flexibility with the dose of desantinib combined with aseminib, and we had further studies beyond these cohorts here. And again, this is phase one data, but I think we see activity with regards to cytogenic and molecular responses in these patients as well. But I think we were all keen to look at this more carefully and perhaps expanding the list of TKIs we could combine with aseminib. So just a quick word to say that at this meeting, we'll see some nice updates of key trials. We had a patient we wanted to use aseminib earlier. Here's some data we can have. For a patient who's on imantinib and hasn't achieved a deep molecular mission, should they add aseminib? Should they switch to nilantinib or should they continue? I want to point you to this abstract on Saturday. Another important abstract is, do we have our first look at newly diagnosed patients? I think this is quite astounding that we can see early molecular remissions at this rate. I think we've broken the glass ceiling potentially. So the, this looks to be a tolerable and even more highly efficacious frontline therapy. I also point you to this abstract on Saturday. So aseminib has been positioned, if you will, you know, relative to panandinib, thinking of areas where panandinib may be favored versus where aseminib may be favored. You know, I think it may be that we use panandinib in advanced phase disease and very brittle resistance, and where aseminib with tolerability, we may be able to have a broader audience for patients with intolerance and resistance, et cetera. Some of the toughest patients would be the compound mutations and patients with pancytopenia. And then I think controversial would be T315I. It depends on the case, I think. So what's coming next is on this table, and I want to share in the last few minutes a bit of the data from the other agents. We have this list of drugs that I mentioned. I'll go over the ones that have been more actively studied. So votabantinib, this is a third-generation TKI that was active against B-serable wild-type mutants with the exception of T315I. But this was studied in patients with two or more TKIs, three or more TKIs, and also after panandinib. There was a very small, I think just a single patient with a T315I mutation, and this is a phase one experience. I think the data is encouraging that major and major cytogenetic responses, including CCYRs, were observed, and major molecular emissions are also being observed. And looking again at smaller numbers of patients, but across the different exposure groups, two lines, three lines of therapy versus panandinib, again, these are not T15I patients per se, are encouraging. The tolerability is, this is a complex slide, but the different arms didn't show necessarily different tolerability issues. Some of the main side effects were myelosuppression and the grade three events, as you can see, are on the lower left, but upwards of 40% of patients had thrombocytopenia. And on the upper right, there are some cardiovascular adverse events, but much like some of the other experiences, some of these patients have comorbidities and advanced disease and they have prior exposure. So I think we have to look more carefully. Median duration of responses was better with patients treated with multiple lines of therapy, third line of panandinib, so that's interesting. And then ovarabantinib, which I alluded to, formerly known as HQP1351, will be presented on Saturday as well. And this is a third-generation TKI with activity against the T315I. And we had seen early data, but we see durable responses and progression-free survival for patients treated at 30 milligrams or more. And we have high rates of adverse events, including myelosuppression, like thrombocytopenia, and as well some skin pigment changes. So we need to look more at the toxicity profile. But again, we have, we're broadening our options for patients with T315I, which is very encouraging and it has modest rates of arterial occlusive events.
Specifically in the teeth 105i population, there will also be a separate abstract looking at that population and the tolerability and the response there. So I, again, I, I refer you to, it's Dr. Jiang is the first author, but one of her colleagues will present for her on Saturday. So just in the last moment that we can't have a CML discussion without even mentioning transplant. And I think we still need to consider transplant in patients who have transformed disease, in whom we've stabilized, patients potentially in whom long-term treatment for T315I positive disease may not be feasible, although now we have other options, including longer lists of TKIs. And patients with the last from the bottom, with chronic phase disease, with clonal evolution, mutations, poor response, you know, we, we may be able to think about combinations in these patients, and it should be taken case by case, but some of these cases still warrant transplant. And lastly, a point, can we consolidate some of these patients who may not be good transplant candidates by switching them to our newest agents, such as Asiminib, for longer-term safety? So let me move my mic here. So, all right, it gets to your last slide, Dr. Morrow. In the TKI era, who is still a clear transplant candidate? So I'm going to actually let Dr. Sweet start here. Well, obviously a blast phase CML patient. I would say I still would consider someone who has progressed to accelerated phase while on therapy is someone who should very likely be considered for transplant. And then the chronic phase patients, you know, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, those are challenging, but we do have those patients who we just can't get even, you know, a complete cytogenetic response. It's rare, but it happens. Or even more challenging sometimes are the patients where we run into issues with myelosuppression, right? Just platelet issues or, or neutrophil issues that we just across the board can't seem to keep them on a drug because we're struggling with their counts. And so honestly, those seem to be a lot of the patients that I have ended up referring to transplant recently because we probably could get a good response if we could get them on a dose of a drug that could control their disease. We just can't do it. So I think those are really what the scenarios that I consider transplant. Dr. Yeah. Morrow? The only point I'll add is that, you know, it's interesting the World Health Organization is now removing accelerated phase yeah. from the nomenclature, meaning that we probably have to look hard at our chronic phase patients for signs of blast transformation, low-level lymphoid blast clones and diagnosis, secondary mutations. I think these are the patients in whom we don't have good TKI options for. So I think that's probably what I would add. I, that's, that my last slide was trying to answer that question. Yeah. And so there's a, a big high, uh, this, what's this high-risk ACA? And so that's a big debate. So, you know, if you see somebody with an inversion three, for example, or a complex karyotype, my guess is you'd be transplanting very quickly in that scenario. We have to put it all together. Exactly. Yeah. Cytogenetics still matters, just as you pointed out. Yeah. The kinase domain mutations, ironically, are, you know, they're not as clear as we'd like them to be, but I think some other things are also relevant too. Are there any particular mutations that you're worried about? You know, when we do NGS, I think we're still a little bit in the dark about what to do with specific ones, but are any worrisome to you? Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely worry about someone with an, with an ASXL1 mutation. What to do about it, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to transplant those patients off the bat, but just, I think, you know, concern as far as overall response, yeah, there's a, I, I, concern, I have concerns. I think we're going to see them coming together. I think we're going to see patients with myelosuppression, with maybe poor, you know, suboptimal response to TKIs who harbors these mutations. Although we have to understand that there may be an age-related phenomenon in the background too. So, and we have survivorship in CML now. So I think we have many questions. Yeah. So I am going to turn it back over to Dr. Morrow uh, to I just, summarize. I, I just want to say that, you know, CML is obviously a chronic disease, so we have to, you know, have the endurance to manage, including resistance and tolerance, and knowing that patients need therapy for several years. That, you know, obviously we've covered functional cure and TFR, that we want to protect against these morbid adverse events, and that we, our choices really abound now. We have greater choices in later line therapy, which is remarkable. So we have to be timely in our change and careful in our monitoring, and then I think Aseminib is a really nice advantage and advance in the field, although the global repertoire is really growing as well, so, so stay tuned. It's been a long journey. That was a cover of Time Magazine in 2000. I don't think we didn't make man or, or pill of the year, but I think we got, um, <laughs> got the cover at least. More questions, yeah? All right, we do. So what starting dose do you typically use with panatinib, and do you, do you ever choose different doses? I mean, I, I tried to share the data that I think 45 milligrams really does offer advantage across the board, and I always think it's better to mitigate risk and to risk stratify and try to achieve your best therapy response rather than go in with the wrong dose, potentially. So I have a choice of 45 with a lower threshold to reduce in the face of adverse events rather than starting lower and trying to select which patients I think don't need a higher dose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I typically, I'll typically start with 45 as well. Rarely I'll start with 30, but typically 45, and then we'll dose reduce when someone gets a response. Okay, and what, what response do you do? Do you do it as per optic? Or yeah. Do you do yeah, I do it based on optic. I, Dr. Morrow? I sometimes, you know, it depends on the patient. I might be, I just 
had a quick question from my practitioner on, before I left for ASH. I had a patient who was just above MMR, switched to Panandum. So they, she said, we're going to switch as soon as they achieve an MMR. I said, we should probably get them into MMR, maybe into MR4, ideally, which is not exactly per guidelines. But I think categorical shift is what I'm looking for, which is the spirit of the optic trial, I think. so. But for patients with less disease volume, that might be a consideration to think about allowing them to achieve a, a more sizable response before you dose reduce. And so T315i, any considerations about dose with that mutation for panatinib? Sometimes I will dose reduce to 30, but I t- typically won't dose reduce down to 15. It kind of depends on the patient. Obviously, optic, it, it looks like the dose reduction down to 15 is, is not, you know, the responses are not maintained as well. But I, I don't know if you just go from 45 to 30, but I have done that in patients that I think we can try to mitigate risks lately. All right. Thanks, Dr. Sweet. So is there any patient for whom you'd counsel against cessation even if criteria were met, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sweet? No. <laughs> a, a patient who I was really worried was not going to follow up. Yeah. Because you, ha- they, you have to make sure patients have close follow-up, e- even beyond you know, the first 12, 12 months, I think, because we still are yeah. learning, and we do see rare late relapses. And, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really put that into perspective for me. I Suddenly, there were patients who had sort of stopped TKI therapy and, and didn't get monitoring, and then two years later, they show up with like an incredible burden of disease, and so yeah. this monitoring is, is really important. So what is the longest TFR you've seen in your patients? Dr. Morrow? Uh, I have about a decade. Dr. Sweet? I mean, I've only been doing this for a decade, so I can't say that, but um, <laughs> sorry. Five years. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, it's 11. So. Ooh, ah. Dr. Oler wins. <laughs> so, all right. So in your current practice, how much of a problem is adherence? Does it improve over time, or is it like a constant battle? I think it all depends on how much you ask, you know. (laughs) And how you ask. Yes. I enter the clinic with the question, not are you missing any doses, but how many doses per month or per week do you miss? Because we're all human. You know, taking therapy for three, four, five years is difficult. So I think adherence, just even the basic sense of taking it daily can be a challenge. Then we're very careful about con meds because of drug interactions, just so people are aware. You know, things like proton pump inhibitors, really obvious things. And then I just, I I think it's just that constant communication because people will do what they feel they have to do to, to stay healthy, to stay well, to manage. And so it, it can be a real issue, even in a, you know, a cancer center practice where you know, we expect people would really be very engaged. They are, but they need help. All right. So we have a case here. So we have a 45-year-old patient, CML, intermediate risk. First line dasatinib failed that. Basutinib was intolerant. And now is third line panatinib, 45 milligrams, major molecular response, dose decreased to 15 milligrams, major molecular response. Question, now what? Panatinib, 15 milligrams, lifelong, cardiovascular toxicity, switch, what to do? Yeah. I would continue the panatinib 15 and just make sure they have good cardiology follow-up. That would be my practice. Yeah. So it, not, a, not, not T315i, we didn't hear anything about No, T315i, no. So I think that's the right answer. It's to stay with the drug that patient's responding to. Yeah. I would put forth for consideration, you know, can we consolidate patients with other drugs with l- lower adverse events as just an idea? Yeah. It needs to be studied, I think. But. Yeah, so I agree. I struggle with that uh, as well, too. So I'm just waiting for, I think, longer emergence of data for a seminib to know. I mean, I think if you have a deep response that you tend to maintain it on a seminib, yeah. which might not actually be true if you switch from panatinib to a seminib for worse response. Probably would matter if the patient had you know, cardiovascular disease, too. You might, your, your threshold for worry might be greater. Yeah. So, all right. So, what doses do you use frontline on TKI therapy? I'm kind of a data geek, so I and a rule follower. So, I typically start with uh, approved doses, right? 400 of imatinib, 400 of basutinib, 300 BID of nilotinib, and 100 of of dasatinib. But I am quick to dose reduce it for adverse events. Full transparency, I do use higher dose amantinib, ironically, because there's some very nice data from Australian colleagues showing that if you use higher dose amantinib or optimize amantinib, you can wind up getting results similar to second generation TKI. So if I use amantinib, sometimes I use 600 milligrams. How tolerable is that? You know, we've studied it in the, in the limited data set we have, and I think that's why that dose seems suitable, because if you look at other experiences, such as 800 milligram amantinib, which was studied many years ago, most patients are able to wind up only tolerating about 600, so we start mm-hmm. with 600. Does anyone start lower dose to satinib for older patients? 
Back to that point about trying to get the best response and manage the adverse events rather than try to guess the lower dose may be just as good. I think there is very good data that suggested that may be the correct answer, that maybe yeah. less is more. But at the moment, I would still use a standard dose. Yeah, I guess that would be that pilot study from MD Anderson with 50 right. milligrams. Yeah, all right. So when do you change from a matnib to a second-generation TKI? What influences that? Well, I mean, I think we have good guidance. I think, you know, the early molecular response is a really key endpoint. I tried to highlight that. So I don't think we have to overdo it, but if a patient has a near one log reduction, I think that's sufficient. Mm -hmm. I think there's data saying that you may be able to look at three and six months potentially. But with a man, since a second generation TKI would be an equally good choice at diagnosis, I have a very low threshold to switch from a man to a second generation TKI for any intolerabilities yeah. or failure of early molecular response. And, and you know, for a matinib, I think we have data from Australia that suggests, you know, getting to less than 10% by six months is okay. And also maybe the slope of the line actually matters. Sure. So it's not just the threshold, but kind of how things go down. All right, so karyotyping bone marrow aspirate at 12 months if patients aren't achieving response. If they haven't achieved B-seriable transcripts less than 1%, I would do it because sometimes they don't correlate perfectly. But if the transcripts are less than 1%, I typically don't. And I was probably one of the later adopters of giving up bone marrow biopsies. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Morrow? I think bone marrow is the most helpful in people who have... Yeah. High, high levels of MRT and to have myelosuppression and other complications. Yeah. Otherwise, not so much. And even then, you might not find anything, but it's that rare case. And that happened to me very recently where this young woman ended up having an inversion three, and clearly the plan changed at that point. So this is a little bit looking into the future. What combination regimens do you see coming our way? I'm going to give this to Dr. Morrow based on his talk. Well, we have such potent TKIs now, and I think there's actually nice preclinical data that it doesn't have to be just dogmatic where you just use the, the doses you use. You might be able to, for example, use lower-dose panandib exposure with the seminib as a combination that's highly effective against compound mutations. So I think we need to work out in the lab what we might be, think is more feasible. That's the most tempting combination for the toughest cases. I think all the way back to the beginning, maybe a combination approach early. I think there are several studies incorporating that to really speed up the remission and really optimize deep molecular remission for TFR is the other way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that might be a, you know, a simple amantinib, mm-hmm. a seminib. You know, just inhibit the ATP pocket and the mirastol pocket at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're out of time, and I just wanted to thank everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Morrow, and thank you, Dr. Sweet. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash mzq860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.